The bias that I saw most consistent when I first started as a public defender was in myself. And you know, it's a real wake up call when you look and reflect on what language am I using? That I am alienating my own clients, that I'm not asking questions that could help my investigation because I'm making assumptions about the person in front of me. You're listening to the Legal Mastermind Podcast with your hosts, Ryan Klein and Chase Williams, the go-to podcast for learning from the experts in the legal community about effective ways to grow and manage your law firm. In Legal Mastermind Podcast, we have Pooja Katari. She's the founder and facilitator at Boundless Awareness. Welcome to the Legal Mastermind Podcast. Thank you very much. It's very nice to be here. We're glad to have you. And today we're going to talk on some thought-provoking ideas during this podcast, basically surrounding and identifying, addressing bias in the workplace. So for our listeners that aren't familiar with who you are and what you do, can you give us a brief background? Yes, absolutely. So I went to Brooklyn Law School, and after I graduated, I got my dream job at the Legal Aid Society. I was a public defender for about seven years at, uh, in the Brooklyn office. And, you know, as a public defender, I represented mainly black and brown and undocumented communities who live below the federal poverty line. So poor black and brown communities. And in there, you know, I tried a lot of cases, um, you know, all sorts of felonies and misdemeanors, um, all sorts of hearings. And one of the things that I did on a daily basis was interrupt bias that came from all sorts of actors in the criminal justice system, from my own colleagues to prosecutors, to judges, to court officers, to the NYPD in the courtroom. Uh, We all use language that can disparage one another. We all use our power in whatever way we can to kind of get a leg up in the courtroom. All of us are vying for some sort of power. And when we're looking to kind of get a leg up or to exert our power over someone else, often we are using language that disparages one another, that disparages communities. And often that language comes from who holds the power in our society. And so you will hear lots of misogynist, racist, classist, transphobic, homophobic, ableist language, because that's where like the language of our power comes from, which I can get into later. And we use that to harm one another. I'm not sure how much good it actually does um, in achieving our our goals, but you hear it all the time. As a public defender, you're not only representing your clients and doing the hard work every day, but you're also encountering language that is really harmful. So after about um, seven years, I decided to take a break. I I was very lucky to have the option of a year-long sabbatical, which I took advantage of. And during that time, I thought about what I could do if I ever left my job as a public defender. And the only um, option that came up that seemed um, that totally was in line with my values and what I had been practicing this whole time was to become an anti-oppression facilitator or an anti-bias facilitator, which means what I do now at Boundless Awareness is I design and facilitate workshops that are about three to four hours long. They can be long. They could be a day long um, or a weekend long, or they can actually be as short as just two to three hours. But I, I facilitate these workshops and I engage other people in the conversations to understand what language are we using that influences 
our attitudes, our behavior, and then ultimately our decision-making. How can we be better decision-makers by understanding the bias that underlies all of our behavior and our attitudes, but also like what language are we inadvertently using that is harming other people in our company or in our organization? And how is our bias um, uh, coming into our decision-making in a way that we never intended and actually is causing us to make poor decisions instead of the ones that we should be making. So it's a long-winded way of my background. You've had quite a journey. It sounds really remarkable. Um, It sounds like you've taken what you've learned as being a public defender, which isn't like the easiest job and translated that into something that's helping, you know, firms across the country transform their business and just be, at the end of the day, better human beings. Yeah, thank you. It was, um, you know, as a public defender, you're working against a system on an individual level, which is extremely important and extremely necessary. And when I moved away from that, I wanted to affect change still on an individual level, but also hopefully on a, a little bit broader level to companies. So People can affect change on, you know, an individual level, on a group level, and of course, on a policy level. And so I wanted to expand or try to expand who I was affecting and who I could um, make change with. Brooklyn is one of the most diverse places in the entire country. And so you definitely had an opportunity to see more dynamics than I can probably count with the different cultural backgrounds and ethnicities that interact with each other. And there's different dynamics and the different ways that everyone thinks about other groups. And so you've probably seen it all. And so there's probably like a common theme that you, you saw first. So was there like a first bias or, or was there a first kind of trend that you saw, even though that there's so many dynamics, as I mentioned, was there still something that seemed like it was consistent across like any people's, you know, once you were getting into your PD work? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was the bias that I saw most consistent when I first started as a public defender was in myself. And, you know, it's a real wake up call when you look and reflect on what language am I using that I am alienating my own clients, that I'm not asking questions that could help my investigation because I'm making assumptions about the person in front of me. It's not only clouding my judgment, but I'm not making good decisions as a lawyer. Let me give a concrete example. Every day when you walk, no matter what courtroom you're in, and definitely in New York City, but across the country, no matter what courtroom you're in, when you day in and day out see only poor black and brown, mainly men, but also of course women, sitting in the courtroom or sitting behind the courtroom, which is where our clients are detained, is it's attached to the courtroom. And you're only seeing that population day in and day out, no matter how progressive you think you are, when that messaging is constantly given to you, you are going to absorb that and you are going to adopt. Even when you consciously reject it, you unconsciously adopt racist, classist, misogynist, ableist thinking. That is how our brain is wired when you see the constant population in front of you. Even though you're smart enough to know all of the statistics, all of the institutional racism, all of the reasons why you are seeing this this consistent population in front of you, and you consciously can say it is because the police are more present in black and brown communities. 
white populations use and sell drugs at the same rate as black and brown populations, and yet you do not see them arrested or policed in, in the same way whatsoever. Even though you consciously know all of these things, it'll, you are still going to unconsciously absorb um, what's in front of you. That was like really the first thing I saw in myself. And the first few years of being a public defender, I would say, you know, the first two years I spent doing a lot of deep work in myself, trying to understand where my racist and classist, misogynist, all of those transphobic ideas came from, interrupting them when I saw them um, come out in the questions I asked my clients. Um, you know, it affects who you interview, what witnesses you go out to, to try to find, um, what alternative theories you're trying to come up with um, as part of your defense. Our unconscious bias is gonna affect all of those levels of decision-making. And I saw it in myself. And once I started unraveling parts of that, my world really expanded. And I was able to really look at my clients, not as clients, but as the people who are layered and complex and nuanced and live complex lives, just like all, I mean, it's, it sounds like kind of very basic and ridiculous to say, but when you can see your clients as complex as they are, you stop referring to them as your clients and just see them as people and say this, I need to investigate what happened here so that I can win this case. I can get a better deal. I can negotiate better with the prosecution. I can have more information that the prosecution has because I did even more diligence because I could see this person as a whole human being. So let's talk a little bit more about unraveling that, that bias. Like, obviously we all have biases just naturally the way our, you know, you mentioned the way our brain is just wired. So how do you unwire? Like, how do you change your mindset? And I think a majority of people would be like, I'm not racist. I'm not biased, but that's in your experience. Like, obviously you have a job for a reason. It's not true. So can you give us some examples in the workplace where you've uncovered that? Yes, all of us have bias. Even as a queer woman of color, I have a ton of bias. We all have our identities that, um, with which we might face oppression. And we also have a ton of privilege. And those two, I, I tell my participants all the time, our privilege and our oppression do not contradict each other. In fact, they inform one another. And so regardless of who we are, regardless of our identities, and regardless of our privilege, we all have bias. And some of the ways that can come out in the workplace is real, what we would consider low-level microaggressions. But when you look a little deeper, these are just kind of examples of everyday racism, sexism, ableism. So some examples is considering who, you know, before COVID when we were in person, there was generally a person who took care of either taking notes at the, in the conference room getting coffees for everybody. The conference room is a mess after the meeting. Who's cleaning that up? Often that work falls to usually women to take the notes, to clean up after the meeting, to go get the coffee. Clients, let's say it's a law firm and you know a woman walks in and the client calls the partner who's a woman, sweetie, honey, any of these euphemisms we use for women talking about what appropriate hairstyles, you know, where does the, first of all, what is, where does the uh, idea of appropriate come from? It comes from white supremacy of what we expect hair to look like from a white supremacist point of view. And I'm not saying like 
capital white supremacy, like capital W, capital S, I'm talking like low level expectations that's based in whiteness, um, standards of beauty, white standards of beauty, European standards of beauty. Calling people of, of color, especially black employees are articulate, being surprised when someone is speaking in a way that you think is eloquent or articulate. So these are like kind of everyday examples and we can call them like microaggressions because they happen in this everyday casual sentence type of way. You know, they're not extreme, overt, like, but calling them microaggressions, we want to emphasize that it doesn't mean it's like something you should brush off. It's micro in the level of how it presents itself, but the impact is still very frustrating. It's very angry. It's condescending. It's, you know, the impact is macro, even though the way it can present itself is like, oh, I was just joking. Or it was just a, it's just a way of saying, like, I'm really impressed by this candidate. I only use the word articulate to show how impressed I am. And so we kind of um, micro in the microaggression means we kind of sweep it under the rug, those who are perpetuating it. However, those on the receiving end, it's not micro to them. It adds up. It's frustrating. It's angering. And it's something that can't be swept under the rug. And what ends up happening is that people feel really disaffected and frustrated and they end up leaving their jobs. Really amazing um, staff who the company depends on ends up leaving because they feel very, very frustrated or they stay and they feel very devalued. And what ends up happening is the morale in the company drops, not only because these, these microaggressions happen, but morale drops when microaggressions happen and nothing is done about it. When there's no accountability, that's when morale drops. Microaggressions are going to happen regardless. We cannot, like we are programmed in this, the paradigm that we might consciously reject. We will always perpetuate the things we, we don't like because unconsciousness is there in our brain. But when we are accountable for it, that's when we can start becoming more aware of it. So it's, it's not chicken or egg. It's like just something has to happen. Either you become accountable and recognize the impact that your statement has had, and then you start becoming more aware of it, or you start becoming aware of it, and then you can become more accountable. But those two ways are how we can really start addressing bias in ourselves. When it's unconscious, it's like, of course, how am I supposed to know about that I'm doing it? You start knowing about it because you take workshops, you start becoming more aware of it, you engage in the scenarios and exercises that I build. And building that awareness makes you not only think like, oh, what else have I been doing? But it also brings that humility, like I must be doing something because we all have bias and no one has maybe called me out on it. And maybe there's a different reason why nobody's called me out on it. And um, that leads to another investigation of, you know, the amount of power you have in the organization and why people may not feel comfortable telling you when you've messed up. I'm curious about some of the wisdom that got you from like this client mentality to the person mentality and then led you obviously to having conversations like these. Um, was it like a lot of self-reflection? Were there peers that you had these kinds of conversations with or um, and maybe like even academic? Because I know we're talking about bias, but like I'm, I'm hearing when going back to the first years of like being a public defender, maybe there was like confirmation bias. Maybe there was like availability bias, like from an academic standpoint. So I'm curious about like those, those ideas and kind of how they help maybe form where you're at now. 
the biggest help I had was an accountability partner. And it's not someone I sought out. It was actually the person who I was dating at the time, who's now my wife, that was the person who was calling me out back then. And I learned so much. One, because that person was a safe person to me. This is a person that I was, you know, I trusted that I was with that I really highly valued, you know, her and, and still obviously value her opinion. And so, you know, I would talk kind of just like how most of us talk without thinking, just talking about my day. Being a public defender is a very frustrating, very difficult job uh, where you kind of feel, you can feel there's a lot of camaraderie by your colleagues, which is wonderful, but you can also feel very alone that you're up against the system and it's all on you. So I would talk very, very freely. And all of this, like racism, classism, sexism, trans, all of this stuff would come flying out of my mouth. And my partner, my girlfriend, now my wife, would really challenge me on it. Be like, I wonder where that comes from. I wonder why you're saying that. I wonder why you think like it's okay to say X, Y, Z. I'll give you a, a very concrete example. When um, I was working night court and when a client gets released on their own recognizance, we have these yellow slips of paper at, at our podium and you write on there their next court date and what court part they're in. And you have to write it really fast because the cases get called so quickly. And so um, my client was being released on her own recognizance and I wrote it so fast. Then I got the date wrong. Then I had to look at my calendar again and I checked with the judge. I scribbled it again. I scribbled, it was all scribbling. Uh, and instead of just writing a, like a new one because it's so fast paced, I was walking with her like towards the, in the well of the courtroom, I was just kind of like walking a few paces with her and I was handing it to her, talking as quickly as possible to say, okay, I'll see you at your next court date. This is your, this is your court date. This is your court part. And I handed her the yellow slip, which had all of these scribbles all over it. And I said to her, she was black. I said to her, I'm sorry, this is so ghetto. And as soon as I said it, I was like, I had this sinking feeling in my, because you know, you know, like things can fly out of your mouth and like, sometimes you don't know, but sometimes you really do know. And I had this sinking feeling in my chest and I was like, why, why did I just say that? And I look, I couldn't, I didn't have the practice yet of saying sorry immediately it was also very fast. So I was like anxious about the next case being called and my client standing alone without me. Lots of things happening, but because I didn't have the practice of interrupting my own bias as quickly as um, I do now, and I'm not by any means perfect now, but at least I have, my reflexes have been exercised since seven years ago when that happened. I kept that for the rest of the night. I came home and I told my girlfriend at the time, I told her what I said. And she said to me, why would you say that? So instead of giving me this out, like, Pooja, you were rushed. It's okay. We say things. She held me accountable. And that's what makes these situations indelible, that you would never repeat them again. Because when your partner can say, that was wrong, and you shouldn't have said that. That was a racist thing for you to say. You wouldn't have said that to a white client. To be honest, in the seven years I worked there, I had maybe 10 white clients, but it's true. I wouldn't have said that to anybody else. So um, that is one of the keys is someone that is safe, trusted, and that you has the same values or, or even 
values that you strive towards to hold you accountable and say, definitely shouldn't have said that. And I wonder where that came from. It's as simple as that. I wonder where that came from to start like helping you become a little bit more introspective. It's interesting during your story, you mentioned you wish you would have said sorry right away. Is that the response to like the easiest response when you realize like, Hey, I'm, I'm doing this. I, I should just say sorry right away. Cause I, I've realized that I shouldn't have said that. So many people, if they said something that they, they didn't necessarily mean to say, they would ignore it. Is it better to say, to address it head on and say, sorry, like you did, like you thought you should have done or kind of let it slip under the rug. Cause maybe the person might not even realize or even might not offend them or, or think it's like a, an issue. Yeah, exactly. That's a really, that's a very good question. What should you do in the moment that um, you realize what you said wasn't the right thing to say? You know, the gauge is or the the standard or the the answer key is not who's standing in front of you. It's your own gut because your gut tells you what's right and wrong. I remember that conversation with the client, and I remember I said to her, "I'm sorry, this is so ghetto." And you know, she said don't worry about it. It's totally fine. Meaning the paper I gave her, she was like, I don't, it's totally fine. I don't know. I can't read her mind. I don't know if she's affected or not, but I know. And that's the measurement we should be using. The answer key is within our gut. We know what's right or wrong. And even if the person in front of us could care less, I mean, she could care. She just got out of jail. She could care less what I have to say. But I have the responsibility as a non-Black person of color to not say things that are racist and harmful to anybody. And I know what that answer is. So, you know, this is a really good question because my clients ask me a lot. We do a lot of scenarios in our workshops and a a lot of the participants say, and I get why they say this because it's it's like an easy out. I give them a scenario like, uh, a client comes into your law firm and calls, you know, one of the women in the conference room, sweetie. And the participant, I'll give them, let's say that example. And the participants will say, well, what if the, that, the woman who is sitting in the conference room, what if it didn't bother her? And it's like, that's not the answer. <laughs> the answer is it's sexist and wrong. And we don't want people treated like that. It, it's meaningless if it didn't bother the person who's like that one person. We're talking about a class of people that should not be disparaged on a daily basis with the language in just we use every day in English. Another way, you know, like we talk a lot about ableism and disability and in our workshops, and there's so much ableist language that there's actually no, there's no counterpart for it. A lot of us use things like, gosh, I... COVID has been so bad. It's been, you know, I've been cooped up at home for two years. I got some serious PTSD from it. That's like, there are people who, who have PTSD. It's not something to just casually throw out there. Oh, I'm so ADD today. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm OCD on this. Can you just like repeat what you said or send me the details again? You know, we throw out this, these ableist words that kind of minimize what people go through or make it seem like OCD, ADD, PTSD, and so many other things are not as serious as they actually are. So that when people actually need accommodations, it's hardly taken seriously. There's a big problem in that. 
you mentioned workshops and you mentioned that you work with law firms, like uh, those are currently uh, the client base. I see also that you work with uh, judges and professors, and I think that's very uh, interesting. Uh, are you able to tell some of our listeners like what those engagements look like and maybe what you help um, you know, judges and professors with? You know, I've been in front of criminal, ju- criminal court judges, housing court judges, and, um, you know, they generally, they see, <laughs> they know. They know the daily stuff that goes on in the courtroom. They know that they are very, very, even if they can't do anything about it, they are very understanding of the power dynamics that are like clearly happening day in and day out in the courtroom. One thing that I think judges have appreciated from um, my sessions is, you know, understanding how, how language is, can perpetuate racism and classism and and all of those things in the courtroom and helping them see that because there's so much that judges actually don't can't change like they can't change the power dynamics I mean they inherently are in but they can change the language that they use towards our clients towards all the attorneys in the courtroom and towards you know the court officers and, and the police that they you know work with on a daily basis for professors I've taught, you know, law, engineering, undergraduate, grad, all sorts of professors. And what I think is interesting for them is really understanding the power dynamic between professor and student and creating empathy from like a student's perspective. I think it's, especially once you've been tenured for quite a long time, it's, it's very easy to forget the, the complete lack of power that students have and then actually overestimate the amount of power that students have. I think professors do both things. Um, so that has been, I think, very, very helpful in, in creating scenarios, scenarios from the student's point of view. So for example, to one group of highly tenured faculty, I was talking about, so the, the scenario was, you are a professor and it is the end of the year and you want to do something special for your students. You, they've been with you for you know the whole semester. And so you're hosting the students at your brownstone and your very beautiful brownstone and you're having people come over, your students come over and you said, bring your significant other. There's one student um, in your uh, class this year who is not out and they do not want to out themselves. Um, they have a fear that uh, if they do, they, and they have a significant other, if, and they fear that if they do bring their partner and they out themselves, that that might affect the relationship, that might affect their recommendation. They have no idea if you are uh, queer friendly or not. And so they don't bring their partner. Everybody else is hetero in that group. They all bring their partners to your house. And so now there is nonetheless, a completely unintended by you, the professor, this imbalance here. So we have all the rest of their students with their hetero uh, partners. And then we have one student who didn't bring anybody because they don't want to be outed. And so then how does a professor look at that person? Um, is there an imbalance created nonetheless? How does the student feel that they felt that for a number of reasons that none of which are your fault, but they still felt that they couldn't bring their partner safely to your home. And so going through that scenario, you know, what we, we have to f- get through the weeds first and the professors, uh, and, and this is, it's not a professor specific thing. Everybody first starts with, but I didn't mean to create this situation. This was never my intention. 
most people often start with their intent. And what my workshops really focus on is let's focus on the impact. We all know you have good intent. Everybody knows you didn't mean to create harm. And nonetheless, harm is created. So let's really focus on the problem. The problem isn't your intent. The problem is the impact, regardless of your good intent. Pooja, for the listeners that want to possibly work with you or learn more about boundless awareness, what's the best way to reach out? Uh, the best way to reach out is uh, through our email uh, team. That's T-E-A-M, team at boundlessawareness.com. My website also has a form that you can fill out, uh, boundlessawareness.com. We have our Instagram. So it's uh, a lot of really great information gets put out on our um, Instagram feed, lots of posts, very informative. Um, there's a whole way to learn on, on, on that feed without, and, and you know, really bring that back to your work before you engage in a workshop. But for those interested in workshops, uh, yeah, team at Boundless Awareness and or go through our website. Thanks for listening to the Legal Mastermind podcast. If you're interested in working with Ryan and Chase, please email mastermind at marketmymarket.com. Make sure to join the free mastermind group for growing and managing your firm at lawfirmmastermind.com. Ryan Klein and Chase Williams are the managing partners at Market My Market, one of the top legal marketing companies in the United States.